He's mine. All right, we are going to be wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know how many weeks it's been, but it's been a lot. So we are at the end of chapter 7. I'll give you just a second to turn there. Looking at the last two verses, uh, verses 28 and 29. And um, really trying to focus. We could have just kind of like packaged this in on the last one, but there's something here that I think we want to take some time to to take apart and unpack and understand before we move on from the Sermon on the Mount. So let's read together Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 28. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that uh, you would bless this time, that you would help your people to hear, that you would use your word to feed your sheep that belong to you by faith. God, that the message would be loud and clear, that by your spirit we would be convinced of the truth of your word and fully submitted to it. Lord, that you would be glorified in this time and that we would find the blessing you have for us. I ask that you would do all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so it's easy to read those last two verses of the Sermon on the Mount and think of them as sort of just like a bookend that shows us, okay, well, that's over now. Moving on, right? Well, that's the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. That's what he said. It's a wrap. And then moving on to what's next in Matthew's Gospel. But there's something said here that's really important, and it points to Jesus being who he said he is. He spoke as one having authority because he did have authority. He still does have authority. So I want to consider, what do you guys think of when you hear that word, authority? Good word or bad word? Do you think of oppression and restriction? Do you, does it sound like something where, you know, Somebody has control over you and you have no freedom of your own. I think that's how a lot of us hear the word authority. And it makes sense because the examples we think of are examples of sinful people who abuse their authority. We've seen plenty of that. And we'd all be right to point at that and say, well, that's not good, right? But is there good authority? There's certainly abuses of authority, but that doesn't make authority a bad thing, right? I mean, it's good that those of us who are parents, that we have authority over our children, you know, and if you're like me, probably times you mess that up, right? But it's good that the authority is there. It's good that uh, employers have authority over their employees because if everyone's in charge, no one's in charge. You just can't get anywhere that way. So the trouble with authority isn't authority itself. The trouble is with who has it and how do they use it. The text this morning says Jesus spoke as one having authority. He wasn't speaking to them as an equal, okay? He wasn't speaking to them as, as, a, as a, a buddy, a sidekick, a peer, a pal. He wasn't speaking to them as one of their scribes who was simply passing information along. He wasn't speaking to them. He wasn't pontificating on Scripture. 
He wasn't offering his opinions about it and waxing philosophical. He wasn't just theologizing and using Scripture as a conversation piece. He owned what he said. They were the very words of God. And he commanded obedience to those words he spoke. He spoke as one having authority. And wherever you have authority, it's authority over someone, right? So over whom did he have this authority? Everyone. Everyone. Now here's the deal. It would be blasphemous for any man to command that kind of allegiance and obedience to himself, right? Unless he was God. And Jesus is. He is God. He is God from all eternity. He is He is the word that was from the beginning. In the beginning there was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. That's who Jesus is. And the word became flesh, John tells us. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, if the word comes along and dwells among us and the word is God, we can rightly assume that he has all authority over all of us, right? He made us. He knows what he made us for. And so it's right, it's appropriate, and it's fair for him to expect us to do and be what he made us to do and be. That's the kind of authority people saw Jesus claim to have and that they heard him speak with. They were astonished. That's not the kind of authority any ordinary man has. It's not like the authority dictators have and and, and abuse and enslave their citizens. It's not the kind of authority employers have over their employees where they may mistreat them or underpay them. That's not even the kind of authority we have as parents, rightly, over our children. This authority that Jesus has is the authority that a maker has over the things he has made. That's ultimate authority. The title of the sermon this morning is The Meaning of Messiah, if you look in your bulletin, because I'm sure we've all heard that before, Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah. You heard me say a moment ago with the children, it's a Hebrew word, Mashiach, it means anointed. And anointing something or someone means consecrating that something or someone for a purpose. And we see in the Old Testament, the rituals usually uh, consists of pouring oil over the thing or person, being consecrated to a specific purpose. So what I want us to ask this morning is, what is the purpose the Messiah is consecrated for? We get a lot of information about the Messiah from the Old Testament. We know that he would come uh, through the seed of the woman to crush the head of the seed of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. We know and we've seen, being in Genesis, that uh, he would come through the line of Abraham, Genesis 12, specifically the line of Judah, Genesis 49, we'll get there eventually, that he would be of the line of David, 2 Samuel 7, that he would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, that he would be Uh, Emmanuel, God with us, Isaiah 7. We get tons of information that a Messiah would come and how he would come. And it doesn't take a lot of figuring, does it, to connect the dots and see that Jesus is this Messiah that the Old Testament promised. But what was the promise? What would he do? He would deliver his people from bondage to sin and... 
he would rule over them in righteousness, justice, and peace. He would be king over the entire earth. That's good authority, is it not? A king who rescues and saves. A king who breaks the chains of slavery to sin and delivers his people and rules over them justly. Sounds really good. It's really hard for us to imagine, though, isn't it? It's hard to imagine because of those bad examples of authority we already talked about. We can't imagine a man exercising limitless authority over all people and over all of creation and it being a good thing. But it is, and that's what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah that was promised. There's a central point to all of the Bible, but the New Testament especially underscores and emphasizes this. It is the supreme authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament opens with it and closes with it. We see in the first chapter of Matthew his very name from Isaiah 7, Emmanuel, God with us. That's who this is. And the angel tells Mary of his kingdom, there will be no end. The shepherds are told, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. So right in the very beginning, at Jesus' birth, as soon as he comes on the scene, we see what the New Testament writers want to underscore and make very clear to us. This Jesus, this God-man has authority. He is the Messiah that was promised. And when he begins his earthly ministry, he begins it by declaring to all men everywhere, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How's that for authority? This is not just some teacher. This is not just another prophet who speaks for God. This man speaks as though he is God. Got him killed. It's good news that this man not only speaks for God, but is God, because we've got questions, don't we? We have questions. I don't care who you are. People everywhere, everyone everywhere wants to know, what, what is this life really about? Everyone everywhere, regardless of what they believe, wants to know the meaning of life. Why do bad things happen? What is truth? Is there really life after death, or is this all we get? Everyone has questions like that. And Jesus answers all of them because he has the authority to answer them. He's not speculating. He doesn't need to do his, he doesn't need to do his research. You can't fact check Jesus. Because he made everything. There's nothing that exists that wasn't made by him. You know, a point we can't get too far into, I'd love to, but at the transfiguration, you remember that? Um, takes up a couple of his disciples to the mountain and sees some amazing things. Again, I can't get too far into that as I would like, but a voice from heaven calls out and says about Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God says, Here's your sign. Been looking for a sign. Here it is. I've heard your cries. I've heard your questions. This is my answer. 
You've searched for answers from rulers and kings and teachers and philosophers, but I am telling you, this Jesus is the one you listen to. He is the word. He is the last word, the final say. He has ultimate authority. Listen to him. And Jesus says all that himself about himself. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. What man can say that about himself? Only Jesus. He is the Messiah, the God-man that was promised. He has all authority. That's why he can say, as he did a few verses before this that we talked about last sermon, whoever hears these words of mine that I'm saying to you and does them will be like the man who has built his house on the rock. And he says there's consequences too for the ones who don't, doesn't he? Anyone who hears these words of mine and does not obey them is like a fool and, and destruction comes for him. Jesus spoke as one having authority because he did have authority and that authority was given to him and he was consecrated for the purpose of exercising that authority over all of his creation. Now, as we continue to talk about Jesus being the Messiah and how having him, uh, having this authority and exercising this authority is central to the gospel of the Messiah, I just ask the question, for y'all here this morning, do you believe it? Well, I don't want to assume too much. Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? And so it might be really easy to just, just jump at that and say, well, yes, I do. Why? Why do you believe it? Muslims believe Allah is, is God. Mormons believe they will be gods one day. So it's not enough to just say, I believe it. Believing something doesn't make it true. Why do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? You know, pop quiz this morning. Why do you believe it? Why should you? God's word. God's word, we have God's word. God's people have doubts sometimes, y'all. I don't know if that's you this morning, okay? Sometimes we have doubts. You know where you go? You go back to what God said. Isn't that a blessing? Isn't that a blessing that you have that assurance, that you have that resource? You have the very word of God at your fingertips. How spoiled are we? You go to the word of God. Jesus' own disciples doubted him at times. It's one thing to have doubt. It's another thing to just sit in it like a hot tub and, you know, just stay there. Jesus' disciples had doubts. You think about doubting Thomas, don't you? That's the first one that comes to mind. You know, another instance is uh, when his disciples, after the resurrection, right, he, you've heard rumors of Jesus walking about, and some of his disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus. You remember this? They're thinking to themselves, man, we thought he was the guy. Couldn't have been, though. We just saw him killed. And they're doubting the news that they received that he was, he was actually up again and, and walking around. I'm going to read that to you real quick, okay? They heard he'd been resurrected. So we're talking about doubt. They heard he'd been resurrected. But stuff like that doesn't happen. You know, this is real life. Like that, that's, what, that, that's what's unique about the Bible, too. I just want to point that out. If this is a propaganda piece, 
They could have done a better job of convincing us, right? Jesus' own disciples were like, no, it can't be, right? They doubted. So I want to read for you real quick. You can turn there if you want to. Luke 24, uh, beginning of verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself, the resurrected Jesus, drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. So they heard this report. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Man, I'd have liked to have been there for that Bible study. Jesus says, you know what God's word said about Messiah? You, you should have known that I would suffer these things. The scripture told you I would. And just because I suffered and died doesn't mean I don't have the authority that the scriptures told you that I would have. My resurrection proves that I have it. And that's what I want us to spend the next few minutes on because I don't know if you've heard this kind of thing before, but sometimes Christians just forget all about the kind of authority that Jesus was going to have and when he would exercise it, and where it would eventually lead. They say the Jews were expecting Messiah to be this great ruler, and that they were mistaken. They say Jesus came to rule over his people, sure, yeah, but not like the whole earth. He didn't come to rule and overthrow worldly authorities. See, that's where the Jews missed it. They, they, they were mistaken. That's not what Jesus came to do. That is patently false. Yes, the Jews saw as only man sees, and they had ideas in their head about what the Messiah was going to be like, and Jesus didn't fit their criteria, but that's no surprise. They were always guilty of idolatry, right? They were always guilty of imagining God as something other than what he said that he was. So what's important to realize is Jesus didn't have to fit their criteria for Messiah. He only had to fit the criteria the Old Testament gives about the Messiah. What did God say? the Messiah would be and do. And Scripture is clear about this, that the Messiah would be a specific person that did specific things. So what are those things? He would be a redeemer of his people. But he would also do all that the first Adam failed to do. 
which is have dominion over the earth. God made Adam and put him in a garden to guard it and to keep it. Made him to guard it and to keep it and to extend it out to the ends of the earth. That's what he was commanded to do. To subdue the earth and bring it all under his authority for the glory of God. That was his task. And Adam failed. So not only does this promised Messiah that's coming, not only does he need to redeem man, everyone of Adam's race, that's all of us, by the way, okay? Not only does he have to come and redeem that and fix that and patch that up, but he has to pick up the baton and finish the race. That's got to be done. That's what Messiah does. 700 years before Christ's birth, we get these words from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. We all know this. We put this on our Christmas cards, right? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. We'll stop there for a second. We know that this Messiah is going to be born. This is going to be a child, a human person. It'll be a man. We got that, right? And the government shall be on his shoulder. That already sounds like authority, doesn't it? And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are only terms that are ascribed to the one true and living God. God's people, the Israelites, only ever believed in one true and living God. Remember, they're surrounded by polytheists. They're surrounded by people who worship a pantheon of gods and idols. They believed in the one true living God. Shema Yisrael Yahweh Eloheinu Yahweh Ahad. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. And yet, Isaiah uses this language. Ascribing to this human child that's going to come all of, the, all of the glory and majesty and authority that God alone has. Of the increase of his government, it goes on, and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forever. An increase in government. A throne, a kingdom forever, this kind of language. That's what Messiah was going to have. So when does that happen? When does Christ Take the throne. He already has. Did you see that when we, when we confess in the Apostles' Creed together? He ascendeth into heaven. He sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. He's there now. He's on the throne. That's happened already. So when will, what about all this other stuff? This government being established and the, the, the establishment of his kingdom and the increasing stuff, is that, is that just figurative? Verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's a promise. It's guaranteed. It's going to happen. Jesus, the Messiah, rules over all. He is the second Adam, as we said a moment ago. The man that has to have the authority, Scripture says the Messiah must have. Jesus has all that authority, and he has it now. And yes, 
We know too, looking at scripture, he will not be warmly welcomed. The Old Testament tells us that. It doesn't leave that part out. The Jews should have been aware of that, that that's part of the promise of Messiah too. He wasn't going to be welcomed as a king. He was going to be despised and rejected. He was going to be broken and beaten, Isaiah 52 and 53. So they're surprised when Jesus comes, but they're surprised because you know, he's just this guy. He's not surprised because he wasn't everything that they were expecting. He was everything they were expecting. They couldn't see it because they'd imagined in their minds something else. All of that that had been described to them is, is appearing different. Seeing only as man sees, they were mistaken. You know, they're like, who's this guy from Nazareth? He couldn't possibly be the Messiah we've heard about. But if they had believed what the scriptures said he would be like, they would have known. They nailed it to a T. So, it's not that Jesus was a different kind of Messiah than what they were expecting. He did come with all the rule and power and authority. And he fulfills what was spoken of him by their prophets. But they rejected him anyway. Just as their prophets also said Jesus didn't bait and switch his people. You know, he didn't bait and switch his people on what it meant for him to be Messiah. There's some things he came to do, and it will be done. The Bible says this Messiah, Jesus, would receive the obedience of all peoples. Genesis 49.10. Psalm 2, the Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." Psalm 72 says the Messiah would have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Psalm 110, the Father says to the Son again, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. One of the most quoted Bible verses in all of the Bible. Highlighting this authority the promised Messiah was going to have. Isaiah chapter 2 says this Messiah would draw all nations up to God's holy mountain to worship him. Psalm 22 shows us all the families of the earth remembering their maker and turning to him again to worship him. The Messiah must accomplish this. It's what he was consecrated to do. It's what he's anointed to do. Daniel 7, Daniel receives a vision from the Lord that one appearing like the Son of Man, that's what Jesus referred to himself as, the Son of Man, one appearing like the Son of Man came up to the Ancient of Days. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So yes, the Jews were right to believe this promised Messiah would do all these things. That he would redeem his people but that he would rule over all things. Not just that he would rescue them out of the world, but that he would rule over the world with righteousness and justice and peace. That's the kind of Messiah they were expecting because that's the Messiah their prophets said was coming. The question is, is that the kind of Messiah we got? Is that what Jesus does? Is Jesus the Messiah the Old Testament promised who exercises this kind of authority? 
Let me read you the Great Commission from Matthew 28. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. All authority. Where? Where's this authority? Heaven and on earth. When? When does Jesus, as the promised Messiah, exercise his authority? Now. He says, it's already been given to me. God says Jesus would have the nations, y'all. And his parting words to his disciples, to us, is go get them. Go get them. Teach them to obey all I have commanded. You know that, how, how that can work even though you're a weak evangelist? And I say that to myself. Okay? Not... Those of you that are weak evangelists know you're weak evangelists. It's why you don't evangelize. Do you know how it can work even through your weakness? The same way he worked through all that sin with Isaac and Jacob and Esau and Rebekah. Because he is in control. He has ultimate authority. And his word does not return to him void. And here's why that authority matters. Why I'm choosing to emphasize that so much in the sermon this morning. Because Christians, and I'm not saying y'all, I'm, I'm really not. Okay, But a lot of Christians, so that you know, fail to recognize the place of authority in the gospel. Plenty of people want Jesus as Savior and not as Lord. Which is true. Plenty of people want him as Savior and not as Lord. We have to be reminded that the gospel isn't just a story. It isn't just a get out of hell free card. It is a command. Repent and believe. This Jesus who was born of a virgin and lived and died in the place of sinners like us is on his throne today and the call of the gospel is a command for you to abandon your self-righteousness. To abandon any claim you think you have to being your own authority. And to trust him. To trust in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins and for peace with the God who made you. There is no one who is not under the authority of Jesus. Because his authority is supreme. It is ultimate. It is an ultimate authority. So it's not a question of whether Jesus has authority, it's clear now, hopefully, from Scripture, he has all authority over all that he has made, which includes all of us. The question is, what is your relationship to that authority? Have you submitted to it? Have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and have you submitted your life to his authority and to his will? There's peace with God there. There's hope and assurance for eternal security. 
to be able to look farther than the problems that you're facing right here in front of you today, but to have a sure hope for tomorrow and to have real answers to some of life's biggest questions now. And all of that is afforded to you because Jesus, the light of the world and the bread of life, is King of kings and Lord of lords. He had the right and the authority to lay down his life for you, and he had the right and the authority to raise it up again. His death, burial, and resurrection were sufficient to redeem you, and his ascension to the throne, where he sits now, testifies to his power and his majesty and his dominion over all of his creation. That's this Jesus that we serve. That's our savior. That's our redeemer. That's our king. Blessed be his holy name forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the truth of your word. God, it is a privilege. I hope that we never fail to miss that we have all 66 books of your word, that we are able to look back on the Old Testament when there were only shadows and figures of what was to come, and we are able now to put the pieces together to see how this all fits, that the story of human redemption that you have been writing is, is finished, and there's things that we're waiting for still, Lord. But Jesus, when your work was finished on the cross, those were your words, it is finished. Lord, we thank you that we live in a time now where we are looking back on all that has been done and we get to wait with eager anticipation and with, a, with an informed hope of what's to come. God, I pray that you would increase our faith all the more, that we might be motivated out of love and gratitude and a fearful awe and reverence for you to obey you and to see that it is good for us, that we would delight in obedience, that we would rejoice in our salvation. God, that we would be so full of, of gratitude over this good news, we cannot help but share it with others. That we would see our friends, our family, strangers even, that do not know you, that our hearts would break for them, and we would be compelled by your Spirit, sensitive to the leading of your Spirit, to open our mouths and give them the news. Father, I ask that you would work that faith in us, that you would help us daily to, to meditate on your word, to communion with you in prayer, to rejoice in our salvation that has been purchased for us on the cross. I ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.